0: you well good morning aldridge parish church and good morning that's nice what a nice reply how lovely and uh, today we're finishing the sermon series that we've been looking at over the summer uh, living the jesus lifestyle and uh, in this series we've been looking at not only what jesus taught and did but how jesus lived how did jesus model life to us what can we learn from the way jesus lived And uh, as we finish this series, we're looking at quite an appropriate topic for the end of the series, because this topic kind of sums up the whole of this series. We can be looking at how Jesus put God first and foremost in his life, even at a great cost to himself, and uh, how that then in turn brought about abundant life. As we begin, uh, we've just begun the Paralympics, and a couple of weeks ago, Britain came second on the medal table of the main Olympics. And I want to tell you a little story about another Olympian that I'm sure many of you would have heard of. And this is a story that I first heard uh, fairly recently. And it's of uh, a guy called, a young man called Eric Liddell. And as I say that name, I'm guessing some of you are going to start humming to yourself, Chariots of Fire. And um, Eric Liddell was set to be the uh, 100-meter sprint champion of the 1924 Paris Olympics. That was what Britain was pinning its hopes on. And uh, throughout school and then throughout university, uh, Liddell excelled in rugby and athletics and Britain was really hoping to get a gold out of Liddell in the 100 metre sprint in the 1924 Olympics. And Liddell was also a committed Christian. And uh, as it came to the time to begin thinking about the Olympics, he said to himself and to those who made decisions about the Olympics that he would not run on a Sunday. For Liddell, Sundays were a day for the Lords. They, they were a Sabbath day. And so he felt it would be appropriate not to run on a Sunday. And as the schedule for the heats came through for the 1924 Olympics, surprise, surprise, the 100-meter sprints had been scheduled for a Sunday. And Liddell refused to run. And the country... Couldn't believe it. As far as the country was concerned, this was a guaranteed gold. And yet Liddell refused to run because it was a Sunday. What was he doing? It was one day. They were almost certainly going to get a gold. Okay, maybe he'd run this Sunday. It's not like he'd have to run every Sunday and this was the Olympics. How often do you get a chance to participate in the Olympics? And then, with an almost guaranteed gold? what was Liddell doing? And with a few months before the Olympics, Liddell decided that instead of racing the, 100, the, uh, the 100-meter sprints, he would go for the 400 meters, a totally different race altogether, requiring totally different sorts of fitness. And so in these first few months before the Olympics, when he made this decision, he began to train. And during this training, Liddell showed no real promise of performing particularly well at the 400 metres. And uh, as the day of the 400 metre sprint final arrived, uh, he was preparing to race, and one of the team surs handed him a piece of paper. And folded in this piece of paper, it said... In the old book, it says, He that honours me, I will honour, wishing you the best of success always. And it was a reference to 1 Samuel 2:30. He that honours me, I will honour. And the race began, and Liddell was off, and he went for it. And he got to the final corner. He went round it. He was on the home straight. And he held on. And Liddell took the win. He won it. Here was Liddell, the 100-metre record breaker, who ended up breaking an Olympic record and a world record record for the 400-metre race. Totally unexpected. The country could not believe it. And Liddell made a bold decision on that day not to run on a Sunday. He was almost guaranteed a gold. And yet, because it lands on a Sunday, he chose not to race. Because although Liddell was a 100-metre record-breaker, he was also a committed Christian, and for him, God came first in his life. And today, as we look at the life of Jesus, we're going to see that for Jesus also, God had to come first before anything else and before anyone else. And we just had that passage read to us from Luke chapter 9, and we're going to come back to that in a few moments. But I want to begin by looking at uh, another passage. So it'd be really great if you had your Bibles open in front of me. Just follow along as we uh, flip to a couple of different passages of Scripture. And as we begin, we're going to see that uh, for Jesus, the will of God, the Father's purposes for him, directed his movements and his actions. And if you're still on Luke chapter 9, just flip back back a few pages with me and go to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to spend a bit of time looking at this chapter. And uh, in this chapter, what we can see about the life of Jesus is a real decisiveness about how Jesus lived. Now, I'll be honest with you, I am not the most decisive of people. Uh, When it comes to some things, if I have some idea as to what I have to do or uh, the decisions I have to make, I'm fine. If I have the slightest hesitancy about a situation, I I could spend a long time making a decision about something that really doesn't take that much thinking about. If you don't like food shopping, don't come with me to Morrison's at 5.30 on a weekday evening. For Jesus, when it uh, came to where and what God was calling him to do, There's a decisiveness to the way he chooses to live. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been baptised by John in the river Jordan. And uh, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, it says that, "...full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil." And if we have a look at a more literal translation of uh, this story in Mark's Gospel, Mark says that Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit into the desert. There's this almost compulsion on Jesus to go and spend 40 days on his own in the desert. And of course, in reality, Jesus didn't have to go. The Holy Spirit never forces us to do anything. If we're going to be obedient to the Father, the Holy Spirit wants it to be an act of love, not out of a sense of duty. He wants us to be obedient because we want to honour him, not because we just have to do so. But as the Holy Spirit uh, descends on Jesus at his baptism, and as the Father speaks words of affirmation over Jesus, He experiences so much of the love of God that he knows that nothing God asks him to do will cause him any harm, but will be for his good and ultimately for the good of the whole world. Jesus has surrendered to the will of the Father and as he allows himself to be driven into the desert, he's tempted there for 40 days by Satan. Satan. So it's this experience of the love of God that for Jesus becomes the motivation to be obedient to the Father. And I wonder for us, have we experienced that same love of God? We sang about it earlier. Is that something we've experienced? If we're seeking to be obedient to the Father, And if it comes from any place other than from the love of God, then we'll end up coming wrapped up in rules and regulations. Our faith becomes a religion, dry, dusty religion. We need to know deep in our hearts, deep down, that God loves us. That he has the best for us the very best and that he wants not only to bless us but to bless people through us as well and maybe you've heard about that time and time again maybe you've been coming to this church for 20, 30, 40 years and you've heard about it Sunday by Sunday but have you experienced that love the Holy Spirit wants to pour out his love into our hearts And not just once, but time and time again. We need to continually experience his love. Maybe as you read a passage from the Bible 15 years ago, God's love just hit you. You experienced it perhaps for the first time. Maybe someone prayed for you at New Wine 15 years ago. Praise God, that's fantastic. But we need to continually experience his love. Let's not be a church that's satisfied with yesterday's bread. We need daily bread. And so having remained faithful to the Father uh, during those 40 days, uh, verse 14 of Luke 4 says that Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and goes to teach in the synagogues of Galilee. And as he arrives at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, the locals there have seen Jesus grow up. They've seen him play with his schoolmates, with his friends. And uh, they don't like the fact that this person they once knew is now, as far as others are concerned, this prophet and healer. And they cast him out. And in verse 31, the passage goes on to say that Jesus goes to Capernaum And he goes to teach in their synagogue. And he drives out an evil spirit. In verse 38, he goes to the home of Simon, where his mother-in-law happens to be ill. Jesus rebukes her fever, and she's healed. That same evening, many other ill people are brought to Jesus, and he heals them. And then, in verses 42 to 44, Luke says, at daybreak... Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And this is only one chapter in one of the Gospels, Luke chapter 4. But in this chapter alone, we can see that there's a decisiveness to how Jesus chose to live. Jesus has experienced so much of the love of God that he's become so sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that as he goes from place to place being led by the Spirit, it's almost as if he just stumbles across the calling that God has placed on his life. He goes to the home of Simon for tea, and Simon's mother-in-law happens to be ill. Jesus heals her. At the same time, Jesus knows when enough is enough and when it's time to move on. Jesus probably could have been guaranteed a job in Capernaum for the whole of his life. They loved him there. And yet Jesus knows that God's placed on his life a call to preach the kingdom of God to the whole of Judea. And if there was ever a question that Christians seem to ask most, I think that perhaps one of the most common is, what is it God's asking me to do? What is God's call on my life? And it's true that God has plans for us. He has things he wants us to do, things he's planned for us to do. And I really don't think, God minds a huge amount, whether we have jam on our toast or marmalade on our toast for breakfast. I think he gives us that choice. But there are things that God plans for us to do. And for Jesus, it was the Holy Spirit in him who led him from one place to the next. For us, we have the Holy Spirit in us who gives us the mind of Christ, who transforms us, into the image of Jesus and changes our desires to reflect his desires. For me, when I was beginning to think about ordination, I wanted to be a lawyer. That had always been my plan in life. And actually, at that point, I had a feeling God was calling me to ordination, but it really wasn't the top thing on my list. And uh, it was as I began to say to God, okay, maybe this is you, I'll take a step in that direction. As I began to walk that way, God changed my desires to reflect his desire. I began to want to become a vicar, as well as thinking it was what God wanted me to do. So when someone says to me, what do you think God's call is on my life? More often than not, my first question is, what are you passionate about? What fires you up? What gets you going? Because God gives us our desires. He puts passions in us. Maybe for you, it's seeking justice for those who are oppressed. Maybe you love mentoring people, coming alongside people, seeing people grow into the people that God's calling them to be. Perhaps it's working with children and youth so that we see Uh, young men and women growing up as uh, mature followers of Jesus. Maybe for you, it's providing great customer service at work so that people look at you and they see something different about how you do your job. For Jesus, as he went from place to place, these decisive actions... The Holy Spirit in him began to work through him, worked through him. For us, it's probably going to be the faltering and uncertain steps of seeking to be obedient to the Father, out of our love for him, in which we see Jesus work through us. So, Jesus sought to be obedient out of his love for the Father and put God first and foremost in his life. It brought about a direction to his life. But this obedience to the Father for Jesus also came at great cost. And in that passage we heard from Luke chapter 9 earlier, it began by saying this As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Only a few verses earlier, earlier in verse 22, in that same chapter, chapter 9, Jesus has said to his disciples about himself, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. As Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, he knows that this is about to be fulfilled. And he also knows that this is the will of God. It had to be Jesus. Jesus had to die so that the whole of humanity could be brought back into relationship with God. But only Jesus, fully God, fully human. Only Jesus could do it. And Jesus knows this. He knows this is the reason he came to earth. And so as he goes towards Jerusalem, he sets out resolutely. There's a purposeful, unwavering determination to Jesus' decision here. It has to be him. And yet it's worth it. And as Jesus and his disciples continue on to Jerusalem, uh, he says to someone, follow me. And the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus says back, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another person says to Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus says back to him, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. And these seem like harsh words from Jesus. Is Jesus really saying here that to follow him means making a decision between following Jesus or family commitments? Is Jesus really saying here that there may be times that we choose not to go to a family funeral in order that we might go and preach the gospel? I'm not quite sure that's exactly what Jesus means here. But I think what Jesus is trying to say is that there's a cost to following him. And we live in a culture that wants to avoid pain at all costs. And it's this postmodern culture of entitlement, the culture we find ourselves in now, that seeks to say, I want what I want and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. It's this culture that says, you can be whatever you like. Do whatever you like to do, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. You don't belong to anyone. You're your own person. And at times, it's a culture that seeps into the church as well. And yet Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. We do belong to someone. One of the amazing privileges about being a Christian is that the Holy Spirit, God Himself, lives inside us. It is amazing. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, God was thought to reside in the temple. Now that temple is us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But it means that we have a responsibility. And it means that we can't do whatever we want to with our bodies because our bodies matter. Whether or not it hurts anyone else is not the issue. We belong to God. And just as Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, so at times we too are called to have an unwavering, Determination to stay faithful to Jesus. Even when it costs. Before what other people think of us. Before our fear of failure. Before our needs to be right. Before our desire for instant gratification. And at times we get it wrong. We mess up. And we have a God of incredible grace who just longs to bring us back again to forgive us and free us from that. And we don't need to make a big deal out of it. We prayed a prayer of confession earlier. God longs to forgive us. We can be free of those things and to say to him once again, Lord Jesus, I put you again first in my life that you would have the throne of my life once again. And why do we do it? Because it's worth it. He's so worth it. Jesus had to endure the cross. But he then gained eternal life. He, he rose from the dead and gained for us eternal life. In Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, Everyone who has left, houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I don't think Jesus means it if you give ten pounds, you're going to get a thousand pounds back. not quite sure that's how it works. But Jesus does mean that he wants to bless us abundantly in this life and in the next if we're prepared to follow in his footsteps. I think probably the greatest blessing we can expect in this life is an even deeper relationship with him, to know him better, to draw closer to him, to experience more of his love, more of his presence, more of his peace, more of his joy. There's a cost to following Jesus, to putting him first in our life, but he's worth it. Shall we pray together? Father, we do thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that he modeled to us perfect living, perfect life. I thank you, Jesus, that you did show us what it meant to put God first in our lives. And at times it almost feels impossible, almost feels uh, too much to attain. But I thank you, Jesus, that you draw really close to us. That when we mess up, you forgive us. And I thank you, Jesus, that as we take these, uh, at at times feel like faltering steps, that you love that, that you love our desire to be obedient people. And that at times that's enough, just our desire to be obedient, our desire to do right. And I pray, Father, for where there's any sense of uh, compulsion or duty Our desire to follow you would become one one of grace, one of uh, doing it because you love us and we love you. Thank you that you're our friend. We bless you. Amen.